Well, my name is Adam. I have the great joy of being the lead pastor here, and it's wonderful to have you with us this morning. Today, we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts. And I want to begin today by asking you a question. Have you ever gotten into trouble? Now, that's not the whole question because I know the answer to that, but have you ever gotten into trouble, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing? Not for doing something bad, but for doing something good? Maybe it was at work. Maybe you refused to lie and it cost you. Maybe it was at school. You stood up for someone being bullied and it landed you in detention. Maybe it was at home. You made the bed, but you didn't put the 36 cushions in the right spot, so you got in trouble. Now, sometimes it's more serious than this and the consequences are more severe. We see a number of examples of this throughout history. For example, I think of Sophie Scholl. Sophie was born in Germany in 1921. She grew up in a a Christian home. Uh, She grew up as a young lady through obviously the, the horrors of World War II. Now, despite a period of involvement when she was young with Hitler Youth, Sophie eventually became disillusioned with the Nazi party and with the horrors of World War II. And so when she became a student at the University of Munich in 1942, Sophie became a key player in what was known as the White Rose Movement, a resistance group that was led by students. They would distribute leaflets and pamphlets and and they would use graffiti to decry and to denounce Nazi crimes. But on February 18, 1943, disaster struck for for Sophie and the White Rose Movement. Sophie was distributing leaflets at the university and at one point she decided to throw a a bunch of leaflets from a a, a railway down into a main hall below. But a janitor who was nearby saw her do this and he was a staunch supporter of the Nazis and he immediately reported Sophie and she was arrested by the Gestapo. And Sophie, along with others from the White Rose Movement, they were executed by guillotine on February 22, 1943. Sophie Scholl, at the age of 22, lost her life, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing, for resisting an evil regime. Now we see something similar at play in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples and leaders in the early church, they end up in deep trouble, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing, for doing something good. They healed this man who had been lame. This is what we looked at last week in chapter three. There was this man who had been lame from birth, 40 years old, and he would come day by day to beg at the gate leading into the temple until the day when he encountered Peter and John and he was healed in the name of Jesus. And so he gets up and he goes walking and leaping and jumping into the temple complex with Peter and John. Now this obviously causes quite a stir, a huge crowd gathers around and Peter gets up to explain what has happened. He begins to talk uh, about Jesus and he tells them that this man was healed by the risen Jesus. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus. 
And what we see happen this week in chapter 4 is that this draws the attention and the anger of the religious leaders, the temple establishment. The priests, the temple guards, the Sadducees, they confront Peter and John. They are, we read, greatly disturbed about what they were saying to the people. So they interrupt them, they threaten them, and eventually they arrest them and throw them into jail for the night. And so it's been quite an afternoon for Peter and John. They just were walking down to the temple to pray. They come across this man who they miraculously heal, and then they end up spending the night in lockup. Now, this is really quite a pivotal moment in the book of Acts, because up until this point, everything has been smooth sailing. The Spirit has been poured out. Signs and wonders are being done. Thousands of people have been added to the church. Everything's been going well until today. Today, the party poopers arrive on the scene. The resistance begins, the opposition arrives. And the question that we should have in mind is, will the church survive? Will the gospel be stopped? Will this small fledgling Jesus movement be extinguished? Now, we obviously know the answer to this question because here we are, hundreds, thousands of years later on the other side of the world, worshiping Jesus, gathered together for church. We know that the church has not just survived, but it's thrived. And so the question is, how? How did this happen? How did the church endure opposition and hostility? How did the church respond to opposition and hostility? How did the church not just survive, but thrive? Now, this is a pressing question for us, isn't it? It's fair to say that the Christian worldview isn't in vogue right now. 10, 20 years ago, Christianity was generally seen as a little bit odd, but generally acceptable, generally plausible. Today, for most people, Christianity, it's not just odd or untrue, it is oppressive and harmful. The Christian gospel is, is nonsense to most people, Christian living is ridiculous, and Christian ethics are seen even sometimes as dangerous. And this is a new experience for many of us. This is probably disorienting for many of us, but it shouldn't be shocking to us. Jesus was very clear that as his followers, we would face opposition and hostility. For example, John 15 verse 20, Jesus said this, that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so the question is not, will we face opposition and hostility? The question is, how should we face opposition and hostility? And today, we want to learn from the example of the early church. We want to look at how they responded when the pressure was turned up. And to make sure we set the right tone, I want to share something that Ray Ortland Sr. once said about the early church, and I just think it's, it's brilliant. It's what he said. He said, the early Christians were not wringing their hands and moaning, what's the world coming to? They were gladly declaring, look who has come into the world. This is a, a Christian response. 
to opposition and hostility. And this is what we're going to see today as we look at the response of the early church in Acts chapter 4. And I think we see two main ways that the early church responded to opposition. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. They spoke courageously. They spoke courageously. Now, have you ever been interrogated or questioned? Have you ever been grilled by someone or by a group of people? I can think of a few times in my life, at school, being in the principal's office. I can think of another occasion at university, but that's another story for another day. But none of these instances in my mind compare to what Peter and John face here in Acts 4. I mean, after they spend a night in the lockup, they are dragged before the heaviest of hitters. Annas is the high priest, and there are members of his high family. These are the most authoritative senior religious figures in the land. And they interrogate Peter and John, and they have one main question for them. We see it in verse 7. They ask them, by what power or name did you do this? How did you heal this man? Now put yourself in the sandals of Peter and John for a moment. They know that these are the guys that got Jesus. Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, they were some of the main players in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so they know if they say the wrong thing, they can imagine where it might lead. So how would you respond if you're in their shoes? You might be tempted to shave off the edges of what you've been saying to filter it. Oh, yeah, we don't be, believe in a literal resurrection. Jesus, nice guy, good teacher, not the Messiah. We'll get back to fishing, you know, you, you take care of the temple. So what they do. I mean, Peter, he's denied Jesus already in his life three times on the night of his arrest and he's not about to make the same mistake again. Even though this time he's facing far more intimidating opposition the first time, it was a teenage slave girl in the courtyard, and he crumpled. This time, it's the high priest, and he doesn't flinch. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks clearly, and he speaks courageously. Look at what he says, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is, and he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, how's that for some courage. Peter not only reaffirms the resurrection of Jesus, which is what got them into trouble in the first place, but he takes it even further. He goes even harder. He says to these religious leaders, you have made the biggest mistake of your lives. You have rejected and killed God's promised Savior, the Messiah that you have been waiting for for hundreds of years. He appeared and you not only rejected him, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. God proved that you got it wrong. And God has made this Jesus the cornerstone 
the most important stone in the foundation of God's new building. This Jesus is the beginning and the end of what God is doing in the world. You got it wrong. And this is why Peter goes on to say to them in verse 12, he says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, what an astonishing statement. What an unpopular statement. I mean, let's be clear. Peter is saying, if you reject Jesus, you reject God. He's saying Jesus is not just a matter of preference or opinion. Jesus is a matter of life or death, salvation or judgment. It's as stark as that. And in case you think Peter is just kind of worked up in the moment, this is the same thing that Jesus claimed during his life. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, how does this claim go down in our day? The answer is not well. It's not seen as politically correct or as particularly loving. Because essentially the claim that is being made is that all other worldviews and, and all other religions, they take people the wrong way because Jesus is the only way. Now, is this arrogant? Is this intolerant? Is this unloving? You know, there's lots of things that, that could be said here. This is a, a sermon or, or a series in itself, but let me just say this. The claim that Jesus is the only way to God, it's not inherently unloving. In fact, it might be the opposite. It might actually be incredibly loving. Think about it this way. Imagine you go to the doctor and you are diagnosed with an illness, a disease, and the doctor says to you, if you want to get better, you must do this. You must take this medication. You can't just take any medication. You can't just take the medication that tastes better. You must take this medication. Now, is the doctor being arrogant, intolerant, unloving? I would suggest the doctor is being honest and clear and loving. And the claim that's being made here in Acts chapter 4 that Jesus is the only way, it's telling us that God has been clear and honest and loving. That he's not left us to wonder about what we must do or where we must go, about who he is or what he's like. But he's very clearly shown us what we must do. He's shown up in human history, not just to give us an option, but to give us the way. Not just to share an opinion, but to give us the truth. And not just to give us a, a self-esteem boost, but to give us life with God now and forever. Not because he's being intolerant or arrogant or unloving, but because he's being good and gracious and loving. And so I guess the question then becomes, well, why Jesus? Why is Jesus the only way? Why not Muhammad or Buddha or secularism? Or why not just being a kind person and living a good life? Well, the answer is because only Jesus has dealt with our deepest and real need. Only Jesus has dealt with our guilt and our evil. 
And only Jesus has defeated the enemy that every single one of us will face one day. The grave. I mean, do you remember what got the religious leaders so worked up? It was that Peter and John were talking about Jesus' resurrection. Now think about this. If they really wanted to put an end to this preaching about the resurrection, we're not too long after Jesus' death. They simply had to go and present the body. The body of Jesus. That's going to put an end to the preaching of his resurrection. But they didn't do it. Because they couldn't. See, the claim of Christianity is that Jesus really did rise from the grave. Physically. That he really did pay for our sin, deal with our problem, defeat the grave. And that this is why he is the only way through the grave and into the presence of God. And this is why Peter makes this staggeringly bold claim. Not because he thought he was better than everyone else. Not because he was smarter than everyone else. We're going to see in a moment that that's not true. Simply because of what he had seen and heard. In fact, this is what Peter says to the religious leaders later in verse 20. He says, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We've witnessed the risen Jesus. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. We cannot stop talking about him. It's the resurrection of Jesus that stands behind this bold claim and courageous speech. And you know, it really leads to astonishment from those who were listening. Look at verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, I think this is pretty funny because I imagine... Peter and John reading this, maybe reading an advanced copy of the book of Acts, and they turn to Luke and they say, really? Did you have to put this in there, Luke? Unschooled, ordinary men. And then I picture the religious leaders, these educated guys, they've been to Bible college, they got letters after their names, and they're looking at Peter and John and they're like, they're not the saltiest chips in the packet. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They haven't been to Bible college, they don't have degrees, they don't have letters after their name, and yet they seem to know the Bible so well. They seem to speak with such clarity and boldness and courage. Why? Now, I think this is actually incredibly encouraging for us, because what made Peter and John so bold, so courageous, so clear, wasn't their gifts, wasn't their personality, it wasn't their credentials. It was simply the fact that they had been with Jesus, verse 14. They had been so transformed by their experience with Jesus that they could not help speak about Jesus. And for us to be bold, courageous witnesses to Jesus, we don't need to have an outgoing personality. We don't need to have a degree from Bible college. We don't need to be well-educated. Now, all those things are good and useful. But what will truly make us bold witnesses to Jesus, it will be a heart that is gripped by Jesus. It will be a heart that has been transformed by Jesus. You know, I think back to when I was 17 or 18, around the time when my eyes were first truly open to Jesus, when my heart was first truly gripped by Jesus. This was before I'd 
received a theological degree. This was before I'd really even read a theological book, but I knew that Jesus had loved me and saved me. And I knew that Jesus wanted to reach out and to rescue and to save others in my life. So I prayed for others. I prayed with others. I was far more willing to invite, to to give a book, to initiate a conversation. If I'm honest, 33-year-old Adam could do with a little bit more of 17-year-old Adam's boldness and enthusiasm. Maybe it's similar for you. Maybe you could do with some more boldness, with some more enthusiasm, with some more courage. And the answer is to have your heart gripped by Jesus, to gaze once again upon the glory and the goodness and the greatness of Jesus. This is what led Peter and John to their, the courageous speech. And amazingly, their courageous speech, it leaves the religious elite speechless. When they look at Peter and John, these uneducated amateurs, when they look at this healed man standing there, we read in verse 14 that there was nothing they could say. They were literally speechless. They were silent. And so they try to make Peter and John silent as well. They tell them to shut up to stop talking about Jesus, to go home and to just be quiet. And Peter and John, I love this, they effectively say, well, you know, you do whatever you think you need to do. You do what you think is right. As for us, we cannot and we will not stop talking about Jesus. And this is really what we're gonna see right throughout the book of Acts. The apostles and the early Christians witnessing, speaking courageously, about Jesus. And this is the first way the early church responded to opposition, to continue to speak courageously about Jesus, even when it's not popular. But it's not the only way they responded to opposition. We see a second way they responded in verses 23 to 31, and it is that they also prayed boldly. Now imagine you've just been locked up for the night, you've been interrogated, threatened and released. Where's the first place you're gonna go? What's the first thing you're gonna do? If it's me, I'm gonna go home, have a shower, have something to eat, and if my kids let me, have a nap. But that's not what Peter and John do. Look at how they react and respond. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Peter and John turned to the people of God and to prayer. And I think that we can learn from their example. I know that I can because when troubles or difficulties come into my life, I know my instinctive response is to deal with it alone. And even sometimes to deal with it prayerlessly, to just jump into problem solving mode. What do I need to fix? Who do I need to speak to? But Peter and John show us a better way. They take their troubles to God's people and to God's throne room. Their instinctive response is to get together and to pray. But what really stands out about their example here, it's not just that they pray, it's what they pray for. Their prayer goes from verse 24 to verse 30. Now you don't see a request show up until verse 29. See, this is not mainly a prayer for comfort and security and and protection. This is a bold prayer 
to a big God. I mean, firstly, they address God as the sovereign Lord. He is in control. He is in charge. And then they share what this sovereign Lord has done. Three key phrases. They say, you made, verse 24. You spoke, verse 25. You decided, verse 28. They know that they're praying to the God who made the world, the God who has spoken to his world through his word, and the God who has decided what will happen. They and us are praying to a sovereign God, a God who is in control, a God who is in charge. Now, sometimes people will ask, if God is sovereign, why pray? If God really is in control, if God really is in charge, then then what difference do our prayers really make? I think the better question, the question we should really ask is if God is not sovereign, if God is not in control and not in charge, why should we bother praying? But he is, so we should. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. The early church knew this and it led them to pray boldly. And we see exactly what they pray for in verses 29 to 30. Look at this, this is just amazing. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now they don't do what I would probably do, which is the first thing out of my mouth would be to pray to God to crush my opponents, to put an end to their opposition. They don't do that. They don't even ask God to improve their circumstances. They ask God for boldness to keep doing what got them in trouble, to keep speaking courageously about Jesus, to keep pointing people to Jesus. They ask for boldness. Now, the word boldness does not mean to be harsh, to be insensitive. It doesn't mean to yell at people, as if boldness simply means speaking louder. The word boldness means to speak openly and clearly and plainly. It means to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. For example, Paul said in Acts 20, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you all that God wants you to know. It's to speak the truth about Jesus with gentleness and respect. It's to speak the whole truth about Jesus clearly and courageously. This is gospel boldness and this is what we should pray for because this is what God wants for us. And we know this is true because of what happens after they pray. Look at the final verse of this passage. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The shaking of the building, it's a sign of God's presence. God is with and among his people. And God is with and among you and I as well. And so when the early church faced opposition, they spoke courageously and they prayed boldly. And this is the same response that you and I are called to as well. You know, earlier I shared with you the story, the example of Sophie Scholl, the young lady who was put to death for doing what was right. 
After she was sentenced to death for treason, she was asked by the man who sentenced her whether she agreed that her actions should be seen as a crime against the community. To which she very bravely, very courageously replied, I am, now as before, of the opinion that I did the best that I could do for my nation. I therefore do not regret my conduct and will bear the consequences that result from my conduct. And a couple of days later, she was put to death. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say something similar? If we could say that we've done the best, not just for our nation, but for Christ. So that when we stand before him, we might not regret our conduct, but be grateful for the privilege to have been involved in his cause for his glory. To see his love and his healing and his hope and his salvation fill our church, fill our community, fill our world. That's a cause that's worth sacrificing for. That's worth being courageous and joyful and resilient. We don't sit around and moan, what's the world coming to? We say, look who has come into the world. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the example of the early church, for these early Christians who had been so transformed by Jesus and so filled with your spirit they could not help but speak of what they'd seen and heard. And Lord, we pray that you might transform us, that we might gaze upon the goodness and the glory of Jesus, that we might be filled by your spirit so that we might become a joyful, gentle, courageous, resilient community where we can testify to your great love and the great hope that we have in Jesus the one who has defeated death and conquered the grave on our behalf. And so use us, we pray, God, for your glory and for the good of many more people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for a closing blessing from Numbers chapter six before we sing together? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.